0: We mentioned some of the uh, COVID and vaccine headlines that have been crossing the Bloomberg. The big one really is U.S. regulators giving a third COVID-19 vaccine clearance to that, especially for those people with weakened immune systems. Uh, The authorization applying to both Moderna and Pfizer with organ transplant recipients or those whose immune systems are similarly compromised. So that's what's really being focused. Meantime, you've seen some of the other headlines about Australia facing its worst COVID-19 crisis yet. Uh, The schools around the country trying to figure it out Uh, voting in many cases to require masks for students and teachers. We're seeing that certainly in Houston, Chicago also taking steps. And we talked about what's going on in Belize, uh, one of the uh, carnival cruise ships. So let's get our weekly Friday check on COVID and the world of medicine at large. Back with us is Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone with us once again on the phone in Long Island. Uh, Dr. Lusbader, good to have you here. How's your week been?
1: Okay, always a pleasure, Carol. Happy Friday. Welcome yeah. back from vacation. Thank uh, you. Very busy.
0: Yeah. Why? Why has it been so busy?
1: Well, the office is busy, and we're actually seeing a number of patients who've been vaccinated, including some staff uh, who've gotten Delta. So hmm. we're definitely seeing those breakthroughs, and everybody is talking about the third vaccine, who's going to get it, and, uh, and when.
0: Well, so what did you make of uh, regulators coming out this week and and giving clearance for some to get that third COVID-19 vaccine? I feel like there's going to be a fair amount of confusion here.
1: Yes, I think this is the first step to basically everybody getting approved for a third vaccine. Mm -hmm. The immunocompromised patients are particularly a concern, and as you say, it's about two or three million Americans, and they can have solid organ transplants, kidney transplant, pancreas transplant, lung, heart transplant. Uh, and then uh, another group with uh, uh, immunosuppressant medications, uh, things like the anti-TNFs for inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis, all of those patients to some degree may have an, ele- an element of uh, immunosuppression and immunocompromise. So the concern is in the patients with those organ transplants, uh, they overall have a worse outcome if they get COVID. Mm. Two, they're not, they don't form antibodies as well because part of your immune system responds to the shots. And they also seem to lose antibodies sooner. So that group really has several reasons why a booster shot makes sense. Although we are seeing more people like healthcare workers who were vaccinated back in January who are losing antibodies and who are getting Delta. So my sense is that. Uh, this is the first group and obviously it's being studied, but I suspect more and more people will have the option
2: open to them.
0: I do think that there's probably, you know, Ian, a lot of people listening to this conversation and they have been throughout the week here on Bloomberg trying to understand, well, wait a minute, how do I know when my immunity falls off? How does it work scientifically? Um, does it just drop off automatically? And I know there's lots of studies being out there of people who are being followed very closely so that, uh, you know, our regulators, um, know when we're going to need a booster uh, on a larger scale. But can you explain that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, so NIH certainly has a a group of patients they're following. Some of this data is from Israel uh, with Pfizer, and they were one of the first uh, back in November, December, maybe even October, to start getting the vaccines, and they're beginning to see more breakthrough and antibody levels drop. For most Americans, we do not necessarily check their antibodies, although i ha i 've checked uh, patients for example, who are traveling uh, who may be going to another country that requires it, and you can get a spike uh, antibody uh, a level and I would say most patients um have antibodies, but we don 't know the exact number where they 're vulnerable people uh, can have no antibodies and obviously they 're unprotected mm-hmm. but even as the antibody levels drop, we think there's a risk and Delta seems to be um, a little more resistant to the antibodies. So there are several reasons why Delta is not only affecting the unvaccinated, which is obviously uh, an epidemic in various uh, counties and states, but why we're seeing even vaccinated people now carrying it. Delta is able, because it has mutated, to escape some of the antibodies formed from the original alpha variant that we gave over the last six to seven months.
0: So do you think most of us will ultimately be getting a booster, I don't know, before the end of the year?
1: Well, I think until uh, a Delta vaccine is is made, you know, specifically for the Delta variant, and of course there may be other mutations and variants, all we can do is really give a booster of the original, Mm -hmm. which does seem to have some benefit, and I do think most of us will be offered that before the end of the year, yes.
0: All right. Interesting to see that. Um, Do you feel like the situation that we're seeing in terms of rising cases and hospitalizations – not good but better than what we saw perhaps a year ago or at the beginning of the pandemic
2: yes
1: we've most more people and certainly older more vulnerable people have been vaccinated they're actually doing better a lot of the young people because they thought they were safe have not been vaccinated and we are seeing more hospitalizations in certain areas you know with that and um Yes, I think we're getting sort of the last number of Americans, the 50 or 60 million, who are not vaccinated. Eventually, will all get Delta sooner or later, even with masks uh, and cohorting and pods and all of that. And I think when that wave goes through, probably November, December, January, America will be in a little better place, assuming no new variants that are resistant come through. So I think it's going to be a rough uh, ride for a few months.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, hopefully more people will get the vaccine, will get boosters, I think, and that should flatten the curve a bit, but it's still going to be a rough going for several more months.
0: All right, let's get back to uh, Dr. Ian Losbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, still with us on the phone in Long Island. Ian, it does feel like we have learned a lot and we have obviously have a vaccine and we're going to talk later on uh, in just about 15 minutes with one of our reporters, a story in business week about, you know, folks, the vaccine works <laughs> and it does make a difference. And we didn't have that a year ago. We are also increasingly seeing companies say, you know what? We're watching these cases rise. We're going to slow our role in terms of bringing people back to the office. So we have learned something and we are learning how to manage this pandemic because we're going to have to, right, because it's with us for a long time.
2: Well,
1: it certainly looks uh, that way. Uh, and, you know, public health measures, um, ever really since uh, the bubonic plague in the 1300s and in 1918, the Spanish flu, there was a whole debate about masks. And, of course, at that time, they just had cloth masks. But there were a number of people who were spitting on the sidewalk and so forth. So, And then polio, smallpox, there's always been a pathogen. At one point or another that that has threatened the public and and the way people respond has always been very variable we're very fortunate to have technology like vaccines and perhaps even some medications whether it's monoclonal antibodies or ivermectin or there, there may be other medications out there that we need to pursue that may also be one arm of treatment so you've got prevention you've got diagnosis you've got treatment but certainly the vaccines have been very very helpful it would be great if we could develop rapidly a Delta vaccine. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, you know, we're seeing uh, businesses like Facebook say, you know, maybe you need to do that from home. Not all businesses can do that. I mean, even medicine, which is, mm-hmm. can be remote or telemedicine, people like to come in. People like to interact. Many businesses are more productive that way, um, and I think it's good for people's mental health. But every business has to make a decision. You know, Is it better for, for uh, their employees to remain distant? Some businesses are requiring vaccines. If the FDA uh, formally approves the vaccine, some businesses and hospitals will mandate that as part of employment. So it's a very dynamic landscape.
0: When you see the schools struggling and clashing sometimes with unions or with uh, their state or local officials, uh, a lot of schools are saying, wait, we we need to have this mask rule, and we're seeing courts rule in in and all of this. What do you believe needs to be done in order for schools to open up safely?
1: Well, I certainly take care of the number of teachers and professors that are very reluctant to go back into the classroom. And obviously, you've got some classrooms with open windows and you've got some classrooms where everyone is vaccinated, including um, you know, perhaps the 18- or 20-year-olds in college. So it's really very variable. I think there are many kinds of masks. The N95s are quite effective. Most people don't wear them or have access to that. I do think each of these is one component. So open windows, pods. Masking will prevent some degree of transmission. It's not perfect by any means. Mm-hmm. We've always said the virus, the aerosols, are much tinier than the pores of the mask. But I do think all of these things are an effort to make everyone feel better that they're trying to do something that will probably slow the spread. Inevitably, the way most pandemics work is that eventually everyone gets exposed, which I think will happen. And so you want to be as protected as can be. Which certainly would be vaccinations at this point, although not perfect. And we need to look at other medications that may be helpful with treatment. Right. The FDA really needs to be more aggressive with that.
0: Hey, real quickly, just got about twenty, twenty five seconds here. You I've heard you mention a couple times a Delta vaccine. Is that likely before the end of the year?
1: I don't think so. I okay. think they're working on it. I think it's going to be easier to distribute the current manufacturing uh, of, of the first of the alpha, basically, uh, eventually we may need to do that, and I think it's good to develop that technology anyway.
0: Well, always good to uh, check. I agree, <laughs> and I think many in the medical profession would concur with you, uh, Ian. Thank you so much. Have a good, safe weekend, Dr. Ian laspater He's clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone, joining us on the phone in Long Island. And just as a reminder, global tracker that we have here at Bloomberg. Virus cases topping 205.6 million, deaths passing 4.3 million. And when it comes to the vaccine, more than 4.6 billion doses have been administered. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So I've been referencing this story as we uh, talked with Dr. Ian Lesbader over at NYU Langone. You know, amid all the headlines of rising virus cases and hospitalizations due to the Delta variant, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that COVID vaccines are really working. That's a Business Week story now online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. So let's dig into it with Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber. He's with us on the remote access line in Massachusetts, along with Bloomberg News, U.S. healthcare reporter, Cynthia Kuhn. She's on the phone in New Jersey. And Cynthia, I want to start with you because you've been following the Uh, I feel like you're on your soapbox a little bit, but in a good way. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks for having me, Carol.
4: (laughs) I think the reality is here. The data is really confusing for people. There's a lot of data coming out really quickly, and there's a lot of anecdotal stories coming out, and I see this in my own life. I think people are hearing about breakthrough infections in their own community, among their friends and family, and they don't know how to make sense of these. Some of these data sets that have been, you know, made visualizations online showing how rare it is to get a breakthrough infection. So I think people are really confused. And I think adding and actually probably feeding that narrative is really the fact that the CDC hasn't come out with a lot of high level data and information about breakthrough infections that might help people, you know, get a real handle on on what we're seeing here. And so there's just this overarching that we continue to talk about with doctors Um, when we report on this, and it's that the COVID vaccine, it doesn't have the capability to stop infection the way other vaccines might. You might be thinking of the measles vaccine, which prevented you from getting measles entirely, but that's not what the COVID vaccine has the capability to do, particularly in the face of Delta. It does have the ability, from what we've seen from breakthrough data, it, it weakens the virus, and so people's experiences don't lead to hospitalization. And death and that's critical that's very critical from a public health perspective but i think people to be fair they mm-hmm. don't want to get sick in the first place so it's not it's if there's no you can see why people are frustrated by this confusing messaging and i think the cdc needs to come out and give more data about breakthrough infections and who's more at risk because i think that's the story that people are really you know,
0: waiting to hear. It's so important, Joel, you know, that's one of the things I've been thinking about. I do feel like that we're losing some of those important data points that really kept us well informed. And especially now that we're dealing with the Delta variant.
3: Well, and I think it speaks to just like, there's, there's new information that um, people are interested in. Mm -hmm. And, and, and Cynthia, just like bringing it back to the CDC there. I mean, What do we know about how they're even tracking breakthrough infections? Because as Bloomberg reported earlier in the year, that was not even something that they were keeping an eye on for a long time.
4: So they decided only to to track hospitalized breakthrough patients. And I don't know if that was because of the resources involved in tracking all breakthrough cases, but I was really surprised to learn when I did another story on sequencing in the U.S. how there wasn't a ton of connectivity in the system. So if a person shows up and gets a COVID test, they may not be asked if they had had COVID before. They may not be asked if they had been vaccinated, for example. And so that critical information may not even get to the labs where they're sequencing the virus. That may have to be pieced together in an epidemiology report or study later on. But at that point, we're losing weeks in terms of figuring out if if we have an increasing number of people who are vaccinated and getting the virus. So that's problematic to begin with. And that just sort of points to this lack of a cohesive system we have. But the CDC said they were just going to focus on the hospitalized patients because those were the most critical in terms of understanding, okay, this is the most virulent type of virus and this is what we need to protect against. But even within the public health community who've been watching this closely, there's frustration that we haven't gotten lots of reports about the hospitalized patients to begin with. So we don't necessarily have a lot of updates on were those people say, I don't know, had other comorbidities, or when did they get their vaccines? That's a big question. Does right. immunity wane over time? And so are these some of the earliest vaccinated patients, for example? And then lastly, people argue to me that if we don't look at breakthrough infections before they're hospitalized cases, we're missing a really big opportunity to make some, do some interventions or stop this or have knowledge sooner, when it's, when, and it's more important for us to know what's going on with breakthroughs overall than just the sickest patients. So that's another important thought that maybe we do need to double down now and say, okay, this is happening. We need to allocate resources and make this a priority to study it. And how much
3: how much is the FDA taking into account um, uh, breakthrough stuff, uh, breakthrough infections, uh, and Delta, for that matter, in, in what they're doing? Because obviously, and we, we talked about this a little bit before on the show this week, it, you know, there's – especially when it comes to kids, like that FDA – approval, um, and, and vaccine hesitancy that, that seems to be like sort of the next shoe to drop in terms of, uh, you know, public health messaging here.
4: In terms of getting younger children vaccinated, you mean, Joel?
3: Yeah, exactly. And and like, even just having the FDA stamp of approval in terms of overcoming people who have hesitancy still.
4: Yeah. So there's some critical things that should happen soon, which is full approval from the FDA and then to the next, step is really the approval for the vaccine under 12. I think there's a 5 to 11 cohort and then um, 2 to 5, I think, are the breakdowns in terms of how these have been studied. And so those are really important. They're going to happen this fall. I I have to say that FDA is a really, um, is runs a little bit more conservative in terms of drug approvals. They may take more time and I don't think that's a bad thing. I know that people are really you know really want these vaccines for children for example perhaps full approval and i'm sure they're working around the clock i think at the end of the day the fda taking a little more time to do that is probably not a bad thing because i think one of the parts of the narrative is that this has been hurried when you look at the anti-vax sentiment mm. that's some of the th- that's that comes up a lot and so the fda is doing things how they want to do it and i think they should resist the pressure to speed things up just for the sake of having something that you know they have to use that, follow their process and protocols and they've they've actually been out of step with other regulators in drugs in the past well, and it's been to the safety of of the process so i think that's not necessarily a bad thing but and to be fair these these pediatric trials are huge so it's going mm. it, to it may be you know, a little bit longer before we get that data. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it is coming really soon. It'll be this fall. And so I think that is really a positive.
0: Got to say the last line in your story, and and for those who might be hesitant about getting the vaccine, if you think it's been bad, it could get much worse. And you cite somebody in an immunology professor over at Louisiana State University uh, in Shreveport, who said, I would almost guarantee that we have more variants that come and they may be worse than Delta. That's why it's so critical to get immunized. I mean, if we don't get to herd immunity The potential for it to get much worse is out there. And just quickly, um, Cynthia.
4: Yeah. And the thing is, the unvaccinated population is how these variants emerge. So the act of not being vaccinated isn't just about not spreading COVID to your neighbors or getting it yourself. It's also about not becoming a breeding ground for a variant that becomes more dangerous than Delta. So getting vaccinated protects your neighbor, yourself your household,
2: Mm -hmm. and
4: the rest of society when it comes to not creating new variants in this ecosystem. So that is the most important thing we can do. It's the beyond masking and other things that we can do that are public health measures. But right. but as an individual getting a vaccine is, is really powerful for preventing whatever's coming behind Delta.
0: Yep. Back to thinking about your community. Cynthia Coons, thank you so much. U.S. healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Check out her story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg dot com. Joel Weber, have a good weekend. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week from Massachusetts. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, there is a fascinating and thoughtful column that you can find at Bloomberg.com, also on the Bloomberg Terminal. It asks a question, what could possibly unite a drug developer with a manufacturer of electric cars? It's all in the narrative. So writes uh, Bloomberg Opinion column that uh, our next guest, Max Neeson, he is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. He wrote it with our Bloomberg Liam uh, Denning and Max joining us on the phone in New York City. Max, it's a great column. It's a thoughtful column and it really does make... You stop and think. Tell us about the comparison of Moderna and Tesla.
2: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, the the obvious comparison is that both of them um, have have added, you know, more than $100 billion in in Tesla's case, several hundreds of billions of dollars um, in value in a very short amount of time. Um, And and that has people calling Moderna, including some analysts, the, the Tesla biotech just in that it's added a tremendous amount of value, eh? yeah. um, and it um, it also is sort of being valued like a platform, not just for its enormously successful COVID vaccine, but for what comes next. So that sort of prompted us to take uh, a closer look at what sort of you can learn by, by looking at the two of them together.
0: Well, for Tesla for a long time, I mean, we had so many conversations here on Bloomberg with analysts, investors. It was really a wait and see. And there was lots of promises about what it would be for a long time. And it, you really had to have faith in the company. And it feels like I get the comparison because, obviously, we get Moderna. We talk about it daily. The run-up that we've seen has been tremendous. Um, A little bit of a pullback this week, but certainly a lot so far in 2021. And yet, it's it's got to be about more than just a COVID vaccine in order for those expectations to play out. Yeah, that's
2: what's so interesting about it. You know, Tesla remains a wait and see, but it's a wait and see that, that to some extent, is materialized. You know, they mm-hmm. continue to grow sales. Um, if you look at it over time, you know, their multiple is. Uh, very, very high right now, but if you look at it a few years out, it gets more reasonable. Moderna is the opposite. It looks reasonable now because they're generating enormous sales from from their COVID vaccine, but go a few years uh, later when those sales are expected to pine, one hopes uh, as the pandemic recedes. And the multiple suddenly looks um, very high indeed because it's going to be quite some time before uh, the rest of its pipeline arrives. So you really have to believe that you know mRNA its technology can can succeed in a variety of other ways, um, and in fact you know, at a higher rate and with better commercial potential than other drug companies usually manage to justify its valuation
0: you know it just is a reminder too Max, that deep down you know when you get away from all the headlines and you forget all the things that Elon Musk does and is out there that at, you know, at its heart, Tesla has been. You know, a startup tech company, at least at its roots, right? And it had to play out. uh, And an innovator, a disruptor. And so, you know, you had to kind of wait for it to grow into its expectations. And as you say, with Moderna, it's in many ways now going to go back to being a traditional biotech company, right? With promises, promises, investments, investments. And then ultimately, maybe it'll pay off long term. One of the things that you get to into your story that I think is so important for our audience, you talk about TAM, the total addressable market. That's key in understanding both of these stories.
2: Yeah, so with Tesla, that, that's always been the thing that justifies its ever-expanding valuation, um, suggesting that it's going to get into new businesses, some more plausible than others, um, which is why, you know, even even though um, it, it certainly may grow into its valuation, still very rich and, and still have to make a lot of assumptions to get there. Uh, but with Moderna, um, it's a little bit of a different story in that, you know, there there's certainly many other drug markets it can break into, but it's already sort of being valued at the the same level as, a, you know, mature drug companies that have, you know, tens of billions in recurring revenue, not sort of just pandemic-specific revenue. So, so it has a long way to go until it can actually prove that it can generate that on an ongoing basis. So it would be very interesting to watch if it can actually – you know, fulfill yeah. and, and maybe expand its market in a way that, that sort of lives up to what, what people are valuing.
0: I mentioned you wrote this column with our Liam Denning, who follows uh, the tech space and names like Tesla in particular. What's some of the conversations that went back and forth between you two about how it was the same, how it was different? Sure. So it really um, it really was. It was just uh, going
2: back through the history of, of how Tesla got to its valuation and then how Moderna did. Um, it all sort of goes back to that, that Tam story where, um, you know, at every point you find or, um, you know, some sort of justification to take things further and further. And then what we got to was, you know, people keep finding a way to expand that for Tesla, but but they may have uh, reached a, a bit of a, more of a limit with Moderna, just looking at the different industries and, and how I think people forget um, in the context of the pandemic, how long and failure prone the drug process, uh, the drug making process is, uh, drug R&D, you know, most products you, you investigate end up failing. So, um, it really did, um, make for a really interesting conversation and I hope Colin as well.
0: Yeah. It's a great read. We were talking about it in the newsroom and I'm so glad you were able to come on and, uh, share your thoughts with us, with our audience. Max Neeson, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Max is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. All right, TikTok, we're just about uh, 10 and a half minutes away from wrapping up not only the trading day, but the trading week. And we are seeing stocks bouncing around little changes, very tight trading range. It does feel like everybody's headed to the beach uh, for uh, the week and the weekend already. Let's bring in though, Rebecca Corbin, founder and CEO at Corbin Advisors. Uh, they are a strategic consultancy and research firm. She joins us once again on the phone from Farmington, Connecticut. Rebecca, how are you? Where is everybody?
5: Hi, <laughs> Hi Carol. Well, hopefully on vacation, you know, we're Essentially, wrapping up earnings season, and this yeah. has been a tough year. Hopefully, they're taking a little break.
0: Uh, if you work for Carlisle, you get the week off next week. So, uh, nice. we're seeing that happen. We talked with them uh, this week. Nice.
5: Um, nice human capital management story.
0: Exa- right? Exactly. Hey, you are constantly checking in on what's on the mind of investors. Um, what are you hearing?
5: Sure. Well, you know, heading into the quarter, a lot of optimism, big expectations for significant beats. uh, That was handily delivered to them. We just did a Pulse poll yesterday, Mm -hmm. global institutional investors, Um, 50% more, uh, 50% are more concerned about um, COVID. Uh, They're raising Delta and Lambda variants, concerns around the, you know, vaccine-resistant population and almost 40 are more concerned around inflation than they were just a month prior. So, you know, there's a lot of um, sentiment. Obviously we have very strong earnings. We had guides that were raised, Um, but heading into Q3 and Q4, um, there is a lot of concern heading into that with regard to COVID inflation, other uh, supply chain disruptions, still.
0: Hey wait, I want to make sure I understand this. So this poll yesterday, global investors, okay. you're saying that 50% are are more concerned, more concerned are more concerned about a month ago. Okay, and 40% are more concerned about inflation than they were a month ago.
5: Yeah, and last last quarter we registered the highest level of concern around inflation.
0: Hmm, okay. And I do feel like, you know, once we get through those earnings periods, everybody is a little bit lost, uh, especially because there are so many questions about COVID out there, what might be next for Fed policy. It's just funny, you know, markets like it when it's sure, right, when we're either gangbusters or we're falling apart because policy is then very clear, and that's not where we are right now.
5: No, and I think we also, you know, we talked last time around the, the dynamics that are happening. We're mm-hmm. seeing record levels of demand. There, there is yeah. no shortage of demand for product right now. However, once, one of the factors that is changing relative to what we were seeing is the consumer. And the consumer, as we saw, um, consumer sentiment plunged today to the lowest level since 2011. Mm
3: -hmm.
5: Um, They're feeling it in their wallet. And as we talked about last time, right, the supply chain, that cost inflation has to move through the supply chain. The last person holding the hot potato is the consumer.
2: Because there's
5: no one else to pass the cost to. And so they're going to speak um, loudly. And, you know, we should be listening to whether they're continuing to spend or not.
0: Yeah, it was interesting, that consumer sentiment, number two, that they were worried. I'm just looking back. uh, 36% of respondents expected decline in the jobless rate. Only 36% of respondents expected decline in the jobless rate. That's down from 52% the prior month, despite record job openings. Consumers also became decidedly downbeat about their income prospects. The gauge of expected personal finances fell to a seven-year low. That's pretty dramatic.
5: Yeah, and, you know, what's interesting is, we saw a massive increase in the number of companies talking about labor or wage inflation i should say mm-hmm. it was actually higher than those talking about commodity inflation
0: which is significant and those are things that stay stay with a company for a while so okay so that's out there that's one narrative right We've had an interesting trading week. We've been in a very tight range. It's been lower volume. It does feel like everybody has gone away for a little bit. Maybe they're all just waiting for Jackson Hole and to see what the the latest shoe might be to drop from uh, the Federal Reserve. Although most think that they're not going to change their narrative, speaking of narratives, um, a lot – How, you know, and then we keep having record after record in the S&P 500. Here we are again, and I think we're going to be at, what is it, if we get a record close today, it's 48 record closes this year. How do you balance that against some of the nervousness we're seeing in the market? Does that set up the equity market at least for some kind of pullback at some point? Well, you know, there's
5: so much. Um, There's so much capital out there, Carol. Uh, So, you know, I I just I can't imagine a time where the equity markets, you know, sure, will go through, you know, kind of potential like crashes and then obviously fits and starts here and there. But, you know, over time, the the equity markets will continue to drive higher. Um, You know, there is a lot of concern around the Fed policy. So there, there's windows of opportunity when you can raise interest rates where it feels okay, and and the benefit of raising interest rates um, is actually for the opportunity that when we get into a uh, a position of you know economic deceleration, you have a lever to pull, and that lever sits very comfortably with the uh, consumer. Um, we really don't have those levers right now, and we're and we're you know the the window is is, is closing because of the massive inflation that's hitting the the consumers i mean we're you know i would just say that we're really out of whack on this cycle covid very very quick to go into Mm -hmm. companies adapted extremely diligently and agilely learning from the gfc right Mm -hmm. the great financial crisis right and now we're seeing this slingshot into you know growth momentum somewhere it needs to you know even out and get to normalization um but discussion around you know strong growth into 2022 in fact estimates that have been provided for q3 and q4 still show continued growth above um five-year averages and you know in terms of but that's because there's a lot of
0: stimulus out there right at this point i mean there's still tons of you know and that's
5: actually what's creating the labor shortage
0: yeah yeah <laughs> to
5: a lot of extent because, right um you know the the and, and that's going to increase so you know in terms of inflation and we talked about this last and there are going to be inflationary costs that are not transitory and those are really going to be around um, you know wages salaries it is an employee an employee's market right now highest lo- level of turnover um, ever recorded and every single uh, company you know eighty two percent of companies on uh, on earnings talked about labor issues
0: yeah no it's really you know I- Exactly. It's important. We keep hearing it. And, you know, this is why I think we're waiting to see some of the data points when we get into September, October, if the world reopens, if kids go back to school, if people who maybe couldn't go back to their jobs can now go back, maybe we get to see some truer numbers and maybe those jobs get filled. But I guess time will tell. And especially it's a little tricky here with the Delta variant. Uh, Having said that, uh, the outlook for next week, what are you expecting? Another quiet week at this point? Again, just counting down to Jackson Hole?
5: Absolutely. I mean, earning season is essentially <laughs> completed.
0: <laughs> we do get from the. We will hear from retailers, right? We'll hear from the retail sectors.
5: Yeah, they're, they're off cycle, though, right? So they're kind of on their own cycle based on the, the, the retail um, uh, segment. But, you know, it, it is going to be quiet. And I think people are going to investors are going to digest this. Uh, you know, clearly with the with the raises and guidance, there is still confidence heading into the back half. But margins are, 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 likely to be impacted. And so we're going to, you know, we're really going to see what happens with inflation as it works through its system and as those, you know, right. the, the kind of buck stops here. I think one thing that we, we need to be, um, looking out for is right. A, A, the margin. Um, but B, okay. you know, sequential sequential growth or deceleration not year over year
0: that's a good point because that makes a big difference because a year over year we know or last year we know what was happening hey Rebecca have a great weekend Rebecca Corbin she's founder and chief executive officer of Corbin Advisors joining us on the phone from Farmington Connecticut they are a strategic consultancy and research firm